According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You can turn to John chapter 1 as we get going this morning. John chapter 1. Continuing our study on the first disciples and then moving on to chapter 2 and dealing with the first miracle. Understand we still have mommies getting babies situated and things like that back there, but that's that's why the Lord tells us to have a relaxed mental attitude and not be a bunch of legalists. So someday, someday I'll work on that. All right, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let's approach the Father and ask Him to sanctify our thinking and sanctify our time. Heavenly Father, we don't deserve to be here this morning, but we thank You for the grace that has allowed us to be here, for the provision that has made it possible for us to assemble together and receive instruction. We do ask for Your hand of blessing upon us, that You would hedge us about with Your protection. Father, that you would set aside distractions, that you would focus our attention entirely upon the truth of your word. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are dealing with the first disciples. We have almost completed this chapter. In fact, we uh, came real close to it a week ago in dealing with Andrew and John, these first of the two disciples. John leaves himself anonymous intentionally so, as the author of this gospel. And, uh, for example, we're told in verse 35 that there are quite plainly, there are two disciples standing there with John the baptizer. And then we're told quite plainly in verse 40 that one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And then it's just dropped to that point. And we're not told, well, who was the other one? See, And so it's left implicitly understood that the author of this gospel is, in fact, the other of these two disciples. The the point of view that this whole narrative is described in indicates that the author of this uh, gospel was an eyewitness to these events. Then, uh, likewise, we have a statement in verse 41 that Andrew found first his own brother. Again, it's dropped, and we're left to understand that the other disciple, the one that has been left anonymous, uh, then also found his brother. And so at this point, Christ now has Andrew and Peter, James and John, uh, four of his, what will ultimately become uh, part of his 12 apostles. We're ready now to look at verse 43. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. You might have these little asterisks in your Bibles, depending on what English translation you're reading. Uh, New American Standard is fond of putting little um, little uh, asterisk marks in there. And uh, all this is is just simply to alert the reader to the fact that um, what we have in here are, in, in the original Greek, are present tenses, but we understand them to be past tenses, for example. He found, he said. It, it communicates better to us in English if it's left in a simple past tense. Uh, but it, it really is in the present tense in Greek. It's, it's displaying the drama and showing the actual activity as it's transpiring. Again, uh, illustrating the point of view of the author as being an eyewitness of these events as they unfolded. So don't get worked up over those asterisks that you have in there, they're just simply, and if you take the time to actually read all of the, um, which nobody ever does, <laughs> except maybe me and a few other weirdos out there, but if you actually take the time to read the forward and the, exp- uh, the explanatory marks, it says a star, an asterisk, is used to mark verbs that are historical presence in the Greek, which have been translated with an English past tense in order to conform to modern usage. In other words, as English readers, we're more comfortable reading it as a simple past tense. And so don't let those little stars, you're going to find them throughout uh, particular authors like John will use the uh, historical present much more vividly perhaps than other authors will. So don't let that throw you. Anyway, continuing on now from John 1, the next day says in verse 43, he purposed to go into Galilee. That is his intention and he will follow through on that intention when we see in chapter 2 he makes it into, into Galilee, specifically the village of Cana. And he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. 
And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. It's interesting the different responses, and we'll break this down here one by one, but this is just simply the overview of the chapter. Let me read on down through the rest of the chapter. Uh, Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe you will see greater things than these? And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. All right, that takes us through the end of chapter 1 with really quite a number of, of areas that could be explored more thoroughly than, uh, than this study will allow for, but nevertheless things that we will comment on and make note of so that in future studies we may return to some of these similar concepts. In the outline, we are dealing with slide number 24. We're almost to the end of the chapter. Point 9 in the outline. As we have... I don't think I need to review a whole lot in terms of the previous outline, although it is good to have Ethel back. (laughs) Um, As we're dealing with this, well, we can just simply run through it faster than anything. It won't take too long. That this does follow the 40 days of the temptation where Jesus returned to the area where John the baptizer was ministering. He will receive disciples according to the will of God the Father. That Jesus did not himself crusade to gather these guys in, but that he does all things in accordance with the will of the Father. And the Father is now giving them to him. And he will receive every single one that the Father gives. Uh, We focused in on our main point three. That his first two disciples will come to him from John's ministry. I find it staggering that when we get over into chapter three that John still has disciples. That you would think that all of John's disciples would follow after Christ, that John himself would follow after Christ, and that the ministry known, you know, up to this point as the, you know, John the Baptist Bible Ministries, or whatever it's called, would be out of business now that the forerunner has fulfilled his uh, ministry to exalt the Christ. So we did a little bit of work on that. Andrew is specifically named, and uh, interesting, it's a Greek name, Andreas, meaning manly. Uh, we presume that he had a... Hebrew name as well, um, such as his brother does, Simon's a, a Hebrew name, and, uh, but if Andrew has a, a Hebrew name, we are not uh, blessed to understand what that name might have been. The other deci- disciple is understood to be the Apostle John. Point four, the Lord, of course, Ioannes, the grace of God or the gift of God. The Lord questioned these two men as to their motivation. Very important. When he said, what are you seeking? He wasn't immediately going to start accepting every every disciple or every so-called disciple or every excited person that came along and said, hey, I want to be your follower. And we'll see more of that coming up in chapter 2. At the end of chapter 2, when at his first Passover, post-baptism, uh, at his first public Passover in, in ministry as the Christ, uh, there's going to be tremendous numbers that will start to flock to him. And he's going to distance himself from some of that. And uh, only accept those that the Father has assigned to him a ministry to teach and to reveal the Father. And much of that comes up at the end of the Gospel of John, specifically in John chapter 17, when Christ is praying to the Father and makes it very clear that these apostles are men that the Father has given to him, that he has then given the word and entrusted with that ministry. Andrew and John gave an answer that indicated their positive volition. They desire to spend more time with him to uh, investigate his credentials. In fact, they spend the remainder of that day with Jesus and they become convinced of his being the Christ. Very important. Again, whenever anything is taught, that you don't just simply accept it at face value and say, oh, well, that's the way it is. No, search the scriptures diligently. See if these things are so. The nature of all God's teaching should be examined by the Word of God itself as the absolute standard. We also dealt with how each went to find their brother, keying in on the word first in verse 41. He found first his own brother Simon. It's left unstated uh, what the other disciple did, but he found second his brother James, and we can infer that by the language of verse 41. 
Andrew's brother Simon has supplied a new name by Jesus Christ. We did a little bit of work, not much, with the, the, the titles of uh, Cephas, uh, the Aramaic name Cephas or Kepha, and then the Hebrew, I mean the Greek word Petros, meaning rock. We didn't do a lot with it because we have that coming up down the road with, the, with that great confession in Matthew 16 where he says, You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. We will deal with that great confession to some length at that point of time. All right, which brings us now to main point nine in the outline. Jesus will gather two more disciples prior to departing for Galilee, assuming that he has at this point four, um, or explicitly three, but implicitly four. He will now gather two additional disciples and travel to Galilee with, uh, I believe, to be six. All right, the first one of these is Philip. So subpoint A is Philip. And then under point B, we will look at Nathaniel. Philip, again, we understand to be Jewish. He is from the city of Bethsaida. All the indications are that he is Jewish, uh, although he, like Andrew, we only know him by his Greek name, Philippos, lover of horses. Uh, Philos is not agape love. It's Philos love, the rapport love, the friendship love, and then Hippos for horse, standard Greek vocabulary here. Again, how much do we... Throw into the, the meaning of these names. Quite often, names are simply the uh, wishful desire of godly parents or the not-so-godly parents, as the case may be, whatever the uh, nature of Philippos is. Sometimes it was named after a family member. Sometimes he was named after a ruler, for example. Uh, Philip uh, the Tetrarch and uh, others that uh, Herod, uh, there was a Herod with the name of Philip. And uh, quite often... Uh, babies were named after political rulers, uh, named after family members, and so forth. I wouldn't uh, put a lot of stock into lover of horses and build a whole theology on, you know, St. Philip and have some kind of equestrian uh, ecclesiastical ministry <laughs> based upon Philip, the lover of horses. The second one that they find here is Nathaniel. The Greek Nathanael. It's not strictly a Greek name. It does come from a Hebrew original. Nathanael, given by God. Both the Greek, Nathanael, and the Hebrew, Nathanael, both mean given of God. 3482 is the Greek Strong's number, and 5417 is the Hebrew Strong's number. Now, I gave you some homework to do last week, and uh, some have actually pursued it, and that's good. Uh, but to take the lists of the apostles as you find them in the four places that you find them, to list them out, to compare them, you will recognize uh, certain things. First of all, the name Nathaniel is only found in the Gospel of John. The name Nathaniel is not found in that list of names that you came up with from Matthew, from Mark, from Luke, or from Acts. All right. The name Nathaniel is found only in John. In fact, he's found in John chapter 1, and then he's found again uh, by name in John 21:2, he's understood to be elsewhere. He's just simply lumped in with disciples. You know, Christ is in the upper room with his disciples. See, but by name, the name Nathaniel occurs individually in chapter one, also in chapter 21, where, remarkably enough, we find that he is a resident of this very same village of Cana that we're about to look at here in chapter two. In John chapter 21 and verse two. Uh, Christ is, uh, or, uh, Peter's gone fishing here, and it says, uh, Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee. Remember, John won't refer to himself by name, so he just simply lets it go as the, as the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Usually he's identified with Bartholomew in the Synoptic Gospels. And again, as you made your list, you found the groups of 12 that were divided into groups of four. And you found that those four were often paired together. Nathaniel's pairing up, or I'm sorry, uh, Philip was consistently paired up with Bartholomew in those lists that you had. And the uh, testimony of the church fathers, likewise, was as the such to identify Nathaniel with Bartholomew. All right. It's interesting when we deal with the finding of these two, uh, as we look at verse 43, he found Philip. Um, it's a little bit different than we can say from up in verse um, 
35, we can say that Andrew and John found Christ. See, Christ was just simply passing by and Andrew and John found him and they went to him and uh, they approached him. See, and on the basis of their initiative, they approached him and then he responded to their approach, asking them what they sought. They answered. And so he invited them to even closer proximity. But here in with in the case of Philip, now it's the other way around. He found Philip. See, so we've had both directions going now in this chapter. Andrew and John early found him, but now he found Philip. All right. You see how it's gone both directions. And I hope that we can recognize things like that so we don't get so legalistic and trapped in, in vocabulary and terminology and so forth. And we don't get the, the fur on the back of our necks all up in a, in a, in a bind when, when uh, somebody uses a phrase like, uh, you know, that I found the Lord, see, or I came to Christ, see. Some people will get very rigid at that and very legalistic and say, oh, no, you didn't find the Lord. He found you, see. Oh, you didn't come to Christ. He, the Father, brought you to Christ, see, and, and try to become legalistic over language that's employed. This chapter here uses language in both directions to say this is the process. And it's both the fact that he found you and you found him when all is said and done. So he found Philip and he said to him, follow me. And it's interesting is that there's no, you know, there's nothing in between verse 43 and verse 44. (laughs) Right? Are you like me? I want to go ahead and add an extra verse in there in between and say, well, you know, how did that work? Did, did he, you know, did he say, okay, or did he ask a question like, who are you or, or all we're, all we're told is now verse 44, uh, where Philip came from. And, uh, and then verse 45, Philip goes out there and finds Nathaniel. But notice what he says. We, plural, not just I, but we, again, showing the close relationship between Philip and Nathaniel and Andrew and Peter. We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So somehow, somehow when in between verses 43 and 45 there, Philip came to understand who this person was that said, follow me. All right. He understood that the claims were based upon biblical revelation, claims built upon the writings of Moses, the claims built upon the prophets. Well, what did Moses say about the coming Christ? What did the prophets say about the coming Christ? See, they had a lot to say about the coming Christ. And and Philip has the doctrine to understand that. He's got the frame of reference to understand that. So when Andrew and Peter are in the company of this man and this man says, follow me. Philip has the doctrinal capacity to identify with that and, and indeed make the application, make the, uh, the identification and follow after. Now, Nathaniel, we presume, has the same understanding of Moses and the prophets. Okay? He has the same understanding of the Old Testament, we would say. Because this, this expression here, Moses and the prophets, is, is an idiom in, in some respects to refer to the whole Old Testament, what you and I have as the Old Testament. Okay? Sometimes it's expanded out to include the law, the writings, and the prophets so that you get uh, the, the, the poetry in there as well. But in any event, he basically, Philip says basically, we found the one that the Old Testament was talking about. Or we found the one that the Bible was talking about. Let's stop calling it the Old Testament at this point because the New Testament hasn't been written yet. Okay, so if we put ourselves back into the mindset of this day and age, let's put ourselves back to the mindset of this very day in 29 A.D. when Christ says to Philip, follow me. Okay, all there is, is what we now today call the Old Testament. They would call it the Bible. All right. They would call it the Bible. The law of Moses and the prophets. See, so. uh what Philip is saying here is we have found him of whom the Bible is writing about. This coming Christ and he's here. Now Nathaniel, we, because Philip approached him with scripture, we understand that Nathaniel has an understanding of scripture. And yet Nathaniel has other issues that are going to limit perhaps his capacity to apply the scriptures. Okay. Now, I think this is important not only for this chapter, but on into the remainder of the life of Christ study, because we're going to be encountering Pharisees, Sadducees, uh, scribes, priests. We're going to be encountering tons of folks who have a knowledge of the Bible. Some of the leading Pharisees were even 
reported to have memorized the entire Bible, which we would refer to as the Old Testament. Okay, And yet, they've got these issues. <laughs> they've got these issues of pride. Issues of scorn, see. And everything that we see kind of encapsulated here in Nathaniel, where he has this scorn over Nazareth, okay, that's going to be magnified and multiply when it comes to the, uh, to the Pharisees, because they have an equal or greater scorn to all of Galilee, remarkably enough. See, now both Cana and Nazareth are both in Galilee. So this is even scorn within within um, the circles of Galilee. I often use Kentucky to illustrate Galilee because that's kind of our modern-day equivalent, and I don't mean to insult anyone with Kentucky roots or background or past life, maybe that you lived in Kentucky, but we just generally, I mean, that's the image they have, the reputation they have as being, you know, a bit country hick kind of, you know, um, compared to more sophisticated regions of our country, perhaps. All right. And, and this is not to be prejudicial or to be, you know, I'm not painting with a broad brush or trying to be, uh, you know, stereotypical or anything. But if the, if the stereotype fits, <laughs> all right. Now, but try to imagine now, I imagine there's probably even within the scope of Kentucky itself, there's probably different places where, you know, one part of the state would look down on another part of the state. See, and that's what we have here in Galilee. Uh, Nathaniel's from Cana, which is just a hop, skip, and not even a jump away from Nazareth. And yet the scorn that he has for Nazareth is quite interesting as well. So Nathaniel's kind of a, a, a microcosm, just a little uh, thumbnail sketch of what really all of the Pharisees are going to struggle with. The systems of pride, the arrogance, that sense of superiority that all of the the educated classes, the religious classes in Jerusalem held those Galileans in because those Galileans were so worldly. I mean, they mixed it up with the Greeks quite regularly. They had inter-business trading with the Greeks and the Romans all the time. Um, they had, uh, they didn't have all the religious knowledge of Hebrew. Most of them didn't even speak Hebrew. They had their Aramaic dialect and most of them spoke Greek. Most of them had, a lot of them had Greek names, didn't even bother with Hebrew names. So a lot of the Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, a lot of these rulers in Jerusalem had total contempt. And, and so here in Nathaniel, we see a little picture of that where he, uh, he snorts. And, uh, okay, the word snort doesn't actually happen there in verse 47, but it's, you know, you can understand it. And uh, he just said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. And at least Nathaniel has the positive volition to at least investigate the claim, even though he's dubious and skeptical uh, and all the rest. And um, when Jesus saw Nathaniel coming to him and he said to him, behold, an Israelite indeed, a true, genuine Israelite, a true as opposed to, say, um, not necessarily a false, but um, true as opposed to... Um, not totally committed, not totally embracing the aspect of Israel. Remember, Paul said, not all Israel is Israel. And when Christ says an Israelite indeed, he's referring to someone who will struggle with both God and man. Someone who, like Jacob, would wrestle with the angel of the Lord in fervent, effectual prayer. Okay? So, side trip here for the moment. Go back to Genesis and let's look at this event when Jacob is renamed Israel. Because when he says, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit, he's saying here, here is truly an Israel and not a Jacob. All right. And so for those that were here way back in the uh, life of Jacob study, you have, you have a, frame, uh, a framework for this. Others, maybe you weren't here for that specific study, but you saw the, uh, but you understand the, the doctrine of it here where he's renamed Israel. All right. Genesis chapter 32 and... The end of the chapter. Genesis 32. And uh, Genesis 32, verses 24 and following. And um, Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. 
We're told uh, that he's not necessarily a man, but he's God in the form of a man. This is a pre-incarnate incarnation theophany of Jesus Christ. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. So, he, so the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Now keep in mind, this is not just a physical bodily wrestling, but also the imagery here portrays the principle of prayer. Then he said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. He said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. All right. And the name Israel, one who strives. So this is described as not a negative thing. This is described in complementary terms. Like when Jesus Christ teaches about fervent effectual prayer and he describes how that persistency, persistency, and you're nagging that unrighteous judge and you're going back and going back and going back. Christ describes that in complementary terms. See, as a, mat- as a measure of faith, as a, as a testimony to diligence. And so, likewise here, Jacob's unwillingness to let go, his unwillingness to not give up until he receives the blessing is a pattern for us of fervent effectual prayer. A lot more on this available in the life of Jacob's study. You're just getting three minutes worth here by way of review. So what is your name? And no longer Jacob. Remember, Jacob is the supplanter. Jacob is the trickster. Jacob is the one that will wheel and deal to get what he wants. He's the one that will bargain for a a birthright. He'll lie, cheat, and steal to get a blessing. He'll... uh, He'll uh, try to manipulate things, and, and when he doesn't get his own way, he pouts. All right, remember, that's Jacob. When he's tricked, when he's out Jacobed and tricked into marrying the wrong sister, he pouts and he insists on getting his own way, and he marries the other sister so as to become a polygamist. That's Jacob. Okay? But now he's renamed Israel. And the persistence of prayer and the overcoming, the, uh, the blessings here, Notice verse 29, then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been uh, preserved. All right, so now we take that back into John chapter 1 now. And when Jesus Christ says, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit, is quite telling. It speaks volumes, as it were, in terms of Nathaniel's um, walk of faith, in terms that he's not a deceiver, he's not a Jacob, he's an Israel. He's an Israelite. He's someone who wrestles in prayer. He's someone who uh, is, is one that overcomes with God and with man and prevails. And we have a glimpse of his fervent effectual prayer life, at least where he likes to pray, uh, underneath this, this fig tree here. All right. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, not being a Jacob, but being an Israel, wrestling with God, struggling with whatever this battle was. See, and Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, the same term that Andrew and John used, uh, teacher, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. What a doctrinal framework he had. To understand who the Christ was, his role as a teacher, his, his deity as God the Son, and his uh, messianic claim to rulership as the king of Israel. See. And Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe you will see greater things than these? Under point 10... Nathaniel's response indicates the messianic expectations that faithful believers had at that time. Nathaniel's response indicates the messianic expectations that faithful believers had at that time. And really, it shows an extraordinary comprehension of Psalm 2 and the expectation that God the Son would indeed be the Christ, who would be the King, who would indeed deliver them from their sins. More and more, though, we're going to find improper expectations. The expectations that the Pharisees had, the expectations that the Sadducees had, the expectations that the Zealots had, the expectations that Judas Iscariot had, and how they get disillusioned when all of their expectations weren't met. See, 
how they got their feelings hurt, their pride was shattered when, uh, first of all, John the Baptist, and then second, like Jesus Christ, wouldn't dance to the little, you know, the fiddle and the tunes that they would be playing and singing. Everybody wanted the Christ to, you know, to appear on their terms. Which is uh, remarkably not that different from how you and I and how people in the world today will approach religion. You know, as long as it's convenient for them, as long as they can, you know, deal with God on their terms, you know, they'll gladly uh, attend a church, they'll gladly, you know, throw some money a little bit here and there, they'll gladly participate, just so long as it's on their terms, and it doesn't interfere with what they've got going on in their life, their lifestyle, their career, their family, whatever else they're pursuing. Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. How did he put all that together? Based upon his understanding of what Moses and the law and the prophets had said. Okay? So let's turn over to Psalm 2 and take a look at it. Again, Oh, before we get back there, let's say one more thing. When he says, I saw you, in verse 48, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. We mentioned this last week and the week before. I'm going to stress it again today and a thousand times before now in the end of the study. This is not omniscience. This is not God the Son exercising omniscience. And last week and the week before, we laid out the nature of the prophetic ministry of Old Testament prophets and how God would reveal to them upcoming events and things to expect tomorrow, things to expect the next day, and uh, the giving you a a reasonable understanding of how Jesus Christ's daily ministry would work as an Old Testament prophet. And so uh, I hope you will take those examples and not be, uh, specifically we gave you the example of um, uh, the prophet Samuel and uh, the appearance of King Saul there. The scriptures we used were 1 Samuel chapter 9 and 1 Samuel chapter 10. So I won't go back into that this morning, but that is uh, material we've covered here just in the last couple of weeks. So it's not omniscience at work. It's not omniscience at work, but the prophetic gift of Jesus Christ, who was a prophet, priest, and king, and the nature of God the Father in revealing his will to Jesus Christ on a daily, indeed a moment-by-moment basis. All right, Psalm 2 now. Why are the nations in an uproar, in the peoples devising a vain thing? You know, it's fascinating. There's a lot of disagreement over... Everybody agrees that Psalm 2 is prophetic, but they want to know, well, when, when is it fulfilled? See, because it seems to be fulfilled in every passing generation. The nations are in an uproar. They've been in an uproar, and the uproar seems to only grow from generation to generation. There is uh, a citation from Acts 2 in the book of Acts where Peter will lay claim to um, certain things being fulfilled, but I would be cautious with that much as we're also cautious with Peter's other statement in Acts about Joel 2 finding fulfillment in the church age uh, and to where we can recognize that things may be playing out in the church age, but ultimately both Joel 2 and also Psalm 2 are looking ahead to millennial fulfillment. Nevertheless, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Jehovah, that's the Lord, Yahweh, against the Lord and against his Christ, saying, all right, so the focus of the cosmos that is against God is going to hate the Father and the Son. They're going to hate Jehovah and his anointed one. If we're going to give this a full New Testament application, we would say God the Father and God the Son. All right. Saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, you can look at this in a couple of different ways, but ultimately speaking, this will find its fulfillment in the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. When... Kings and rulers will feel that they are being um, constrained in bondage. See, when Jesus Christ came in first advent, he did not rule over this earth. He did not rule as a king. He did not demand obedience. He did not require the kings of the earth to gather together, to, uh, to gather together in Jerusalem and worship him at the Feast of Tabernacles. 
See, he did not exercise dominion over a Gentile king that may have resented or lamented over that matter. See, uh, Zechariah 14, if you're not familiar with the passage there. Okay, so the tearing away of the fetters, the tearing away of the cords, this has in view here already an anointed one who is seated on a throne. And um, we have that. In fact, verse six even says, as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. All right. So this psalm understands that the king has already been enthroned. And we, you and I understand that in the first advent of Jesus Christ, he was not yet a king enthroned. He was a king, obviously, but he was not yet enthroned. All right. He didn't come to be glorified. He came to serve. He came to go to the cross. The cross has to precede the crown. So this is looking forward. This is second advent. This is millennium. All right. And I think you and I can be solid on that and, and real clear on that here this morning. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast their cords from us. Now, in general terms, of course, the nations have always been in an uproar. And even though Christ isn't presently seated on a crown and on a throne in Jerusalem, still they are going to rebel against divine authority. They're going to rebel against God's will. They're going to rebel against uh, his standards of righteousness. They're going to want to do their own thing. But uh, that's, that's only in, in general terms, not in the specific application here of Psalm 2. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. Now keep in mind, when Christ is on the throne and the Gentiles are just chafing to get out from under his authority, the Father is the one that's going to validate Jesus Christ. And the ultimate destruction on Gog Magog is going to be fire from heaven, not from the Lord Jesus Christ on his throne, but God the Father will destroy the Gog Magog rebellion. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord Jehovah there scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. So here again, here's the, here's the context for Psalm 2. And the king, the king of Israel, Nathaniel recognized the coming king of Israel would be Jehovah's anointed one. Verse 7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. There's the other part of Nathaniel's declaration. You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. See, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Now, the Pharisees would go into conniptions over such things. When he declared God to be his father, they threw absolute fits. When he said that his father was not their father, they were provoked to murder. He'd say, you are of your father the devil. You desire to do the things of your father. See? And they would absolutely bristle. And they'd say, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. And you're just a, you know, they oh, the anger that they have there in John chapter 7 and John chapter 8. All right? So we're going to deal with some of those things. But I want you to see that here is the king as Nathaniel bore witness for. And here is the son, as Nathaniel bore witness for. The son of Jehovah, the son of God himself. Today I have begotten you. In other words, a specific point in time. Verse 8, ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Now, here is an invitation where God the Son is, God the Father is extending an invitation to God the Son, and all God the Son has to do is ask. Now, He's a Son that's already seated on the throne. He's already seated upon Zion. He has rulership over Israel, but He does not yet have rulership over all the nations of the earth as His inheritance. The very ends of the earth as your possession. Keep in mind, Israel has finite boundaries. Israel, even in the covenant, the land grant covenant given to Abraham, has finite boundaries for the land grant given to Israel. On the other side of those boundaries are the are the territories that are designated to the seventy nations of the earth. Okay? But here, God the Father is promising the very ends of the earth as possession. But it's going to come with some discipline here. Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. 
All right. So just so I don't lose anybody here this morning, we're dealing with the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ in the context of this passage. I don't lose you. I'll draw pictures. (laughs) All right. Here we have a king. And he's installed. He is installed upon Zion, my holy mountain, it says. So here he is ruling from Jerusalem. But he's got a land grant here that has boundaries. All right. Outside of those boundaries are Gentiles, called in this context nations and peoples. They are political nations, they are Gentile races. All right. And they are in an uproar. They are scheming. It says in verse 2, they take counsel together. And their schemes are hostile against the Lord and against His Christ. Okay, so they are scheming. And they are hostile. Now, Christ is not their king. They have their own kings, but those kings are subservient. They have fetters, it says. They have fetters, and they don't like the fetters. So Jesus is not their king. He is the son of David on the Davidic throne. And he is not yet the Gentiles' king. They have their own kings. And they're required to go and worship the king of kings. You following? This is millennium. This is millennium. Okay. Um, Hold your finger at Psalm 2 and just take a quick peek at Zechariah 14. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. All right. Zechariah 14, the last chapter of Zechariah. And the kings will come, and the one who doesn't. All right, verse 16. It will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went up against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. But they're not going to like it, not in every case. Okay. Now keep in mind, the millennium starts with nothing but believers, but as more and more children are born... Not all of them are going to get saved. And even those that are believers in the tribulation that enter into the millennium can still go negative. All right. It will be that whichever of the families of the earth. Notice it doesn't say if or maybe some. But it says that whichever ones don't. Whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. That's the immediate divine discipline for not, not approaching the Lord Jesus Christ at Jerusalem on this annual pilgrimage and worshiping Him. If the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations, not if they don't, but the ones which don't. The Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. So, these are the fetters. These are the cords. This is what the, these nations in the earth are rebelling against. And they're hating it. They're hating it. But now, back to Psalm 2. In the context of this, he says, ask. God the Father is giving an invitation to Jesus Christ. And he says, ask. Ask of me. And I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. In other words, we're going to go beyond these boundaries. Ask. And an even greater kingdom is now going to be bestowed. Not just simply ruling in Jerusalem as the son of David, but ruling over all of the earth as the son of man. Ruling over all the realm of humanity. See? Ask. Now application in verses 10 through 12. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Okay? Still in this millennial framework. Uh, Worship 
the Lord with reverence. Because if you don't, judgment. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son. Another term for worship. It's paralleled with verse 11. Okay? Remember, they hate the Lord. They hate His anointed. But they're being admonished here. David is saying, worship the Lord and worship the Son, His anointed. Do homage to the Son that He not become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. So this is the application here. Looking forward to the millennium. And when Nathaniel says, back to John 1 now, when Nathaniel says, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel, it demonstrates a remarkable understanding and expectation for what the Messiah would be all about. Nathaniel's response indicates the messianic expectations that faithful believers had at that time. John 1.49 related to Psalm 2, verse 6, verse 7, and verse 12, both as the Son of God and the King of Israel. The Son of God and the King of Israel. Now, I'll let you finish writing. Point A, Son of God. Point B, King of Israel. Because nowhere in the course of these next three and a half years that he's ministering with these disciples, that he's traveling through all of Israel, that he's revealing the things of the Father, he's, he's totally focused in on, shall we say, this item. Because he has come to reveal the Father. He has come to glorify the Father. And he's come to suffer and he's come to die. This one, although he will confess it's true, he'll tell Pilate, yep, I'm a king. Okay? But he does not emphasize it. He does not uh, promote it. He does not pursue it. He's, he's fulfilling the Father's will and the Father's timetable and the Father's schedule. And the cross has to precede the crown. Even after he goes through the cross... Even after he's resurrected, even after all of that, and the disciples are finally, Acts chapter 1, the disciples are finally, you know, beside themselves and saying, Lord, <laughs> you put us through an awful lot, you know. <laughs> you put us through the cross, you put us through the, I mean, we've gone through a lot, Lord. Now, now is it time to restore the kingdom to Israel? <laughs> And even then, he says, that's the Father's decision to make. Even then, he says, the kingdom will be brought in when the Father determines for it to be. All right? So, these are their understandings, but we want to recognize that they're still dealing with a single Advent concept, whereas you and I understand two Advents, first Advent, second Advent. They're still looking at a single Advent. They're still looking at the coming of the Christ, and this is what they're expecting Him to do. Now, something else we will comment on, not so much here in this chapter, we're going to deal with it again in chapter 2, it's going to come up again time and time again, is when did these disciples get saved? Okay. Notice we have the word believe in here in verse 50. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? See, now we can get sidetracked because the word believe is in there and say, well, this is the incident that that this was Nathaniel's conversion event, that this was the incident that that he, he saw this, he heard this prophetic testimony and and he believed. OK, don't get confused by the term believe in there, because this believe is going to come back again and again and again and again. Um for instance, he says, you know, there's even greater things that you're going to see coming up in verse 51. The heavens open, the angels of God ascending and descending. In fact, the apostles are going to be given a glimpse into angelic conflict and they're going to be given the uh, teaching on how to endure and the, the tools that Christ will use when angels come and minister to him and strengthen him in the midst of angelic conflict. The, the apostles are going to be seeing all that. They're going to use that in their ministry. But 
there will be other things. When we glance down to verse to chapter 2, I'll give you a preview for next week. He turns water to wine. And verse 11 says, This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So is that the conversion event then? Is that when Andrew and John and James and Peter and Nathaniel and Philip, is that when they got saved? See? Or do we start to recognize that there are applications of faith for believers, there are applications of faith all throughout the Christian walk, that these men were already saved before they were introduced to Jesus Christ. They were saved because they had positive volition looking forward to the coming Christ. But yet they placed they placed their faith in the different things that they saw. See, this is the, the uh, outworking of your faith. This is called we walk by faith, not by sight. This is the faith of a believer being exercised in daily life. And it's important that we understand that because there's also such a thing as the unbelief of the believer. Where you're faced with a test and you don't exercise faith. See, has nothing to do with whether you're saved or not. It's the fact that you are saved, but now you're faced with a test and you, you don't believe. The unbelief of the believer. See, and so we'll deal with a lot of those things there as well. And it's possible for a believer to be walking in the light and then all of a sudden... Through carnality, through pride, through other things. Just stop walking by faith, start walking by sight again, and not apply faith to a test. See, in Hebrews calls that stumbling because of your unbelief. So, we're going to see, don't get, um, don't get distracted because the word believe is there in verse 50, and then it's again in chapter 2, and it's going to be elsewhere throughout the Gospels, that somehow this is when this person got saved. Because he's already a believer, but these additional things are helping him to respond by faith in the outworking of the Christian way of life. All right. Uh, chapter 2, then, will take us into the wedding, the turning of the water to wine, and the wedding in Cana, and um, total uh, a passage that everybody in the world knows about, even a lot of unbelievers know about. You know, oh yeah, you turn water to wine. But what is this passage all about? And, um, you know, is it about weddings? Is it about wine? Is this a passage about drinking? Is this, what is this about? Is this a passage about faith? As chapter 11 summarizes and talks about faith. Or is it talking about glory? Manifesting glory, it says. He manifested his glory. In John chapter 17, he's going to say, Father, I accomplished the work you've given me to do, for I have manifested your glory, his name. All right. Anyway, we will do that. The, the, uh, the whole point of doing miracles is not the gee whiz value of, hey, I'm doing a miracle. <laughs> or isn't this great? But the miracles giving evidence of the divine credentials of the ministry. And you better be listening to the message. And the miracle doesn't give glory to the one doing the miracle. The miracle gives glory to the one who gave the miracle, representing the Father's glory. So we'll deal with all that and uh, the things here with the turning the water to wine. So that will come up next week. We've got like five more minutes still, but I'd hate to start on something and just drop it. So it's a better stopping point. Do you have any questions? Anything in Psalm 2? Anything in the millennium? Anything in terms of the uh, ask, and I shall give the ends of the earth as a possession? Anything with uh, doing homage to the Son. The Hebrew poetry there in verses 11 and 12. Anything? No? Wow. That's, that either means I explained it so well it's all crystal clear, or it was so confusing and hopeless that you figure what's the point in asking a question. Okay, we'll give it to Gary then. We'll go to Gary and then up here to Michael. Uh-huh. Jacob's Ladder. It is very descriptive of Jacob's Ladder. Nope. It's it's an interesting verse because 
uh, you say, okay, well, where is that fulfilled? And you, you start searching Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and trying to find an event where heavens are open and angels are ascending and descending, and you don't find, the closest you might find would be maybe the transfiguration or maybe the resurrection and ascension. Um, but we do find other places where angels will come and minister to him, for example, such as already has happened in the temptation of, uh, chapter of Matthew chapter 4. And so um, we find this as a description of not necessarily a narrative event that that uh, will be described in the Gospels, but actually a method of operation that they will learn from, if that makes sense. That they will see the heavens open. They will see, in other words, they will have their eyes open to spiritual reality like Elisha had to open his servant's eyes to say, we're not surrounded, what are you talking about? We got them surrounded. You know, and, and Gehazi didn't know what Elisha was talking about. He thought that they were surrounded by armies. And Elisha said, no. And he opened his eyes and he saw the, the chariots of, and horses of God, that the angels actually had the, the, the Syrians there surrounded. So um, I, I view, that's how I take verse 51 anyway, in terms of having the apostles will have their eyes open to see angelic conflict and spiritual realities. Okay. Michael, did you have something? Right. Yeah, that is interesting to take the rain falling on the just and the unjust as an expression of common grace that's available to even the heathen today, and yet in the millennium that principle being abrogated a bit as divine judgment does indeed remove rain from those nations. And the, un- the believers in those nations are going to suffer. You know, believers in Egypt are going to suffer because the king of Egypt doesn't go to Jerusalem. See, in which case the rain falls on the just or the unjust, or the rain doesn't fall on the just or the unjust, in which case blessings and cursings by association is still a valid principle to be applied even in the millennium. It kind of reflects the, we'd say the tone of each age, Well, even not, no, not open rebellion. It doesn't, it doesn't come into the open until, until Gog Magog. It's, 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 uh, it's still plots and schemes, taking counsels together. It's still a conspiracy throughout until such time as they can secure the release of their leader, demanding the release of Satan from the abyss, and then they can march under his banner at Gog Magog. It's not open rebellion. It's, it's very much conspiratorial. It's very much under the radar. It's very much, although the, the, uh, Failure to appear at Jerusalem is is a rebellion, but it's a rebellion by absence or omission or, or protest more than an active march uh, or, or open hostility. So uh, it, it comes. I, I hesitate to use the word open rebellion until you actually get to Gog Magog. Until right. Oh yeah, yeah. Seated in Jerusalem, and they they hate him anyway and rebel against him. That's right. Shirley, did you have something? To start with, to start with. Right, well, they will have children born that will not all get saved. And even those who are saved in the tribulation would still be susceptible like they are today. A believer today can still go into rebellion and, and disobey. That's right. And, and, you know, you'd think, well, somebody who, somebody who got saved in the tribulation and lived through the tribulation and, and entered in the millennium, there's no way they would ever rebel. Are you kidding? Well, you could use the same logic about those who walked through the Red Sea. You know, those who walked through the Red Sea, who saw the waters parted, that passed on dry land and got into the well, there's no way they would possibly rebel against God. You better believe it. Within 30 days, they're grumbling at Meribah. All right. So. Right. Mm hmm. Absolutely. The millennium will prove that perfect environment doesn't help fallen man. A perfect government won't help fallen man. They're still going to be in rebellion against God, even with perfect environment and perfect government on the earth. So there go the great panaceas of modern day liberalism that, uh, you know, perfect government and perfect environment. And we can make this place a utopia. 
Well, the millennium will have both perfect government and perfect environment, and they will still rebel and hate the Lord Jesus Christ. So, all right. Well, we will return next week, Lord willing and rapture pending to uh, John chapter two. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your faithfulness in our lives day by day. We rejoice that you, uh, Father, are so gracious as to make yourself known, to reveal yourself to us through your word and equip us to comprehend your word. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.